Hello, lovely people. How are you? I hope you're good and thank you so much for listening. Now, one little favour, if possible, could you follow this podcast? That would be amazing. I know there are so many to choose from, but the more people who follow the next chapter, the more people we can help with their next chapter. So that would just be wonderful. Thank you very much. Now, speaking of wonderful, let me introduce you to today's guest, Kat Taylor. And I personally feel that it is outrageous that Viktor Frankl can find meaning in a concentration camp and we cannot help young people to find meaning. Kat, in her own words, questioned school and authority when she was a child, but navigated her own way through this. So who better to work with young people now, helping them to navigate their way through their own lives? Kat trained as an occupational therapist and she worked in a psychiatric unit for several years. But after many years of supporting children and young people in statutory services, she decided to pack up her toolkit, as she describes it, a system she believes is broken. So now she's helping parents access what they need when they need it. Kat works as a child and young persons therapist and is also the boxing therapy manager at the charity Empire Fighting Chance, where she has helped transform thousands and thousands of lives. Kat teaches techniques not just to cope, but to thrive as the person we are. In short, how we all can become our true selves. She's all about having fun and gives some great advice for us adults too. But be warned, there's some tough love in here. Her mission is to take away stigma and labels and teach children what they can't learn in school. Kat does this in such a warm and unique way. I learned so much from this conversation and I hope you will too. Hello and welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to author, I speak with incredible people who've already started their next chapters in the hope it might help you with your next chapter, or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here she is, Kat Taylor. Kat Taylor, welcome to The Next Chapter. I have been so looking forward to our conversation, so thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. I've been really looking forward to it as well. I love 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 talking about this kind of stuff so when I heard about your podcast and and what it focused on I was like oh my goodness that's amazing like this is what the world needs good good I'm glad you think so because I think so as well it's amazing and we're going to talk about this so okay as ever we start with your prologue cat so I think your prologue I find quite fascinating actually with the notes that you sent me so you grew up in Bristol you're the daughter of a vicar and a physiotherapist and you say that you had a lovely childhood a very positive childhood but as the youngest of four you always had this sort of nagging sense that everything had already been done before which I'm sure lots of youngest children can relate to I mean how 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 was that for you? Um, I feel like at, at, at first, when I was younger, I guess I became aware of it when I was sort of at secondary school. And so, you know, my my eldest sibling, my brother, kind of left school and went to university. And when they started reaching those kind of milestones um, and doing those things, and then I would catch up and do the same things, like get GCSE results and things. I think I found it quite frustrating. I was also, um, so my, the sister closest in age to me was an incredible sports person. She held all of the records at school. Um, And so everyone made a lot of assumptions about me and 
that I'd be the same as her. And, and it was really hard to, I wasn't, I was terrible <laughs> at sport at school. Uh, and it was really hard to, to sort of forge my own identity and kind of work out who I was and what I wanted to do. And I think a lot of people experience that anyway, in, particularly in kind of traditional family settings to sort of feel that there's another way and that you don't just have to follow um, what everyone else does. But as I got older, um, actually what was really useful is it kind of had everyone having done the same thing before and I got the same kind of degree classification as all of my siblings did. And that's what spurred me on as I got older to, to think, actually, do you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something different and I'm going to show them that I can do things differently. So when I was able to sort of notice it and and kind of actively address it it actually kind of fueled me to to want to push myself and do something different from everyone else yeah and so you had a sister above you and so the other two were they boys or boys or girls uh but one of each so I have uh two sisters and one brother the brother there's seven years between us and then sort of a couple two or three years between the other two wow okay right mm. that's amazing and but to have that insight as well to think that I think that's incredible and also what I found well, this is what I find fascinating as well fascinating as well she said you know you were well behaved at school and you're very conscientious but you also have this conflict about the traditional educational system mm. which is actually very topical at the moment as well but struggling with this idea of power and you know people telling you what to do the teachers but then you went on to actually think that you were going to become a teacher mm. later on so so how did that so how what how did that sort of work out why did you think you want to be a teacher when you were finding this you had this conflict yeah so I guess partly it was one of those things and I think uh my sense is that a lot of us uh, experience this as well that I just always assumed from a really young age like from when I was I don't know four years old playing schools with my teddies at home and stuff I always um I always knew I liked uh kind of interacting with people um I, I always like little children so even when I was at primary school I remember when I was in year six I loved going uh down to the infants and kind of playing with the reception children so I really loved um working with children uh but I just because I you know my my father was a he was a vicar but he um worked predominantly for my lifetime as a school chaplain um, so he was in schools. My mum was a physiotherapist, but she worked in a school for children with special needs. So she was in a school. My eldest sister was a teacher. My se uh, second uh, eldest sister was uh, a, a teaching assistant. So I just kind of, see uh, there were lots of assumptions that that's, and I'd always thought that's what I'd do. Um, and I think as well, I've always had this really fortunate that I've always had this sense that if you see something either in yourself or in the world around you that you don't like don't complain to do something about it mm -hmm. and so I guess my experiences of struggling in school and um, my first uh, first few years of secondary school we moved to the north of England and I went to a very very traditional public school <laughs> didn't didn't it wasn't my jam um and uh, but it, it turned me into who I am today it was a, a a very useful experience because I can remember you know the teachers we'd all have to stand up when the teacher walked in the room and I can remember being a very good well-behaved 11 year old but just thinking like but I don't understand because I'm no different to you like we're both humans why should I have to do this and 
Um, so I guess one of the reasons I wanted to teach was to be able to kind of do things differently and support children and young people um, in, in more creative and innovative ways. But in my, uh, I, I, and I filled in my UCAS form and I was interviewed at various different universities and I got accepted places to do primary school teaching. And I, one of the universities was Reading and I was going to do primary school teaching with art as a specialism. And I remember taking my portfolio of art, uh, artworks, and I was talking to the, the lecturer who was interviewing me. And I was really raving uh, about kind of how much I love art and, and all of the things that I was doing. And I remember him just saying, and it was a throwaway comment, but I remember him just saying, you seem to really like art. Have you not thought about doing an art degree? And I don't remember how I responded. I think I laughed it off, but it, it landed with me. And I remember coming away and thinking, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do a degree that will force me to have to sort of uh, fit into a certain box. Mm. Um, and so with a few phone calls, probably from my, <laughs> my parents at the time, um, to UCAS, I managed to very last minute change my UCAS application to do fine art and philosophy wow. had an amazing time really enjoyed it um but graduated without any idea what I was going to do and it's interesting because everyone said to me oh, maybe be an art teacher and I was like no I don't want to be a teacher I don't know what I want to do but I was so grateful that I I had kind of open space rather than like a closed pathway yeah yeah and did you go to Reading and do that so you stayed at Reading yeah wow okay that's yeah. just brilliant that is well I mean so but also I'm just so amazed at sort of how because at that age and obviously we'll come on to talk about this because you work with lots of young people to have that insight and to realize mm. and it, you're absolutely right what you say about the space which is what the next chapter actually is all about because it's we all think we have to go a certain way but actually if you do like hold your own space and think well what is it I really want you don't have to be feel trapped anyway. Oh my goodness, Kat! I'm, all, I'm off, but this is honestly this is brilliant. This is brilliant. So, um, you're going into your first chapter. So you did. You graduated in 2004. Mm -hmm. You didn't know what you uh, wanted to do. You were thinking you didn't want to be a teacher, but you did get a job as a learning support assistant mm -hmm. in a primary school. But it was through this, actually, and here's this is funny how it does all work out. Mm -hmm. This then you found out about occupational therapy and this started taking you on your path to where where you're supposed to be. So how did that all come about? Um, so that is, that is a brilliant story. I was working with, and again, uh, which I, I think is a theme that will probably come out uh, through this conversation, but um, I feel I have sort of got everywhere I have in my career by just kind of following my instincts, trying things out and kind of saying yes to stuff. And so I became a learning support assistant because I graduated, didn't know what to do. I, by a process of elimination, I was like, I like working with people, I like children, I'll do this for a kind of stopgap and see what happens. And and I absolutely loved it. I was working one to one with uh, initially with a child, um, a six year old child who had um, special educational needs, and uh, it was a it was a real <laughs> baptism of fire. Like he uh, he had a lot of um, things that he struggled with that I had to kind of support him around. And I was twenty two at the time. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I I, I really enjoyed it really loved working um, in this way 
and he uh, had an occupational therapist because he had a lot of sensory needs. And I remember she came in and she she was chatting to me and, and uh, a big part of uh, what he needed was he was um, he really needed to sort of be able to explore the environment around him. And he had uh, quite a high sensory threshold, so loved kind of running around and throwing himself off things and uh, bashing into things. And it was the summer term. And I remember her saying to me, uh, you know, one thing that could be really good is if uh, maybe in the, on the grass in the school playground, if you could get one of those long water slides um, and yeah. that he and his schoolmates could um, could kind of run uh, and slide down. And I remember just thinking like that really struck me. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, you have the best job in the world, <laughs> like <laughs> prescribing water slides. Yeah. To kids. And good. I didn't know. um I had never heard of occupational therapy and I guess that was sort of one of my first uh, pieces of advice that I would give people is um, there are so many careers out there that you will have never heard of, never come across. And my mother was a physio, but I'd never heard of occupational therapy. A lot of people haven't. Um, and so from that, I decided just to sort of check it out. And I spoke to, through different contexts I had, I spoke to a lot of different OTs, ones who are working in stroke rehab, ones who were working in pediatrics, mental health settings. Um, and I really liked the sound of it, but I took a punt. I didn't know if it was going to be right for me. And at the time, another three-year degree uh, sounded like a really long time. But I remember thinking, just just try it. Mm. See what happens. I was very fortunate at the time. This was... Uh, Again, sort of uh, 2007, I started that degree and those, uh, they were NHS funded places, so I didn't have to pay uh, loads of tuition fees. It was, it was pretty much funded for me. Mm. Um, and I just tried it out. And again, pretty much as soon as I started doing it, I felt like this is it. This is, I love this. This is what I want to do. Oh, amazing. So just so we are clear, what is an occupational therapist? <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> in question. case. Because now you say that, do you know what? I don't think I do really know. Mm, it's it's a really, uh, it's a really um, sort of unknown profession, if that's the, if that's the right phrase for it. It's um, a little understood profession. So Often people, if people have come across um, occupational therapists or OTs, it's usually uh, that they've got a, an elderly relative um, and you have uh, physical OTs. And if they work in care of the elderly, they'll do things like sort of put uh, grab rails around the house and they'll support them to, to get from A to B to do the things they want to do. So in essence, occupational people often confuse it with occupational health as well, which it's not. Occupational therapy is the idea that we are all occupational beings, humans need to do stuff we're doing creatures and when we are doing the things that are meaningful to us um, then we thrive and when we're unable to do those things it really impacts on our health and well-being so in a, in a basic sense occupational therapists find out what someone wants to do what someone needs to do in their day-to-day -day life so if it is uh, an elderly client who is returning home after they've uh broken their hip then you need to help them to get around the house to, to cook for themselves to make tea to to be able to wash and dress um but the brilliant thing about occupational therapy is once you're qualified you can work 
in so many different settings. You can work with, uh, you know, neonatal um, ba- mother and babies, um, mothers and babies. You can work in sort of pediatrics with small children. You can work in mental health. You can work in physical health, stroke rehab, elderly, um, so many different areas. So I remember as soon as I started thinking, this is brilliant, because again, it's it's a degree and it's a qualification and it will open doors, but I've got that open space mm. again. I can do so many different things with it. Mm, yeah, it just goes to show. Oh, yeah, I haven't looked at it like that. And interestingly, you know, this is what I listen to lots of interviews all saying the same thing, especially at the moment, about how we are all much happier, uh, you know, mm. when we do are doing what we love or, you know, living how we're meant to live. So actually that applies to not just, but then obviously doing an occupational therapist, you can apply that to actually just life without, if there's, without a problem. But actually then you're helping people um, live life. So how, I mean, how rewarding. And so mm. did it, which, just so we've got the full picture cap where did you go to university for that did you did you go away somewhere then uh no that was uh bristol so i went to ue and university of the west of england but you know like you say you just don't know what these there are careers out there and also there was funding there as well so this is that's even i mean that incredible so from there you ended up going to work in an inpatient psychiatric hospital and i would imagine this is where quite a lot basically then this unfolded and this is where before we get into your next chapter but this was the seeds were being sown weren't they so you know I know I've been in I've spent a lot of time in psychiatric hospitals and I know Mm -hmm. what they are like and that is a tough environment Mm -hmm. I yeah a tough how long were you there for I was there for uh, 2011 to 2000 14 so just over three years okay and where was this in bristol yeah a hospital called callington road uh, just outside of bristol okay and were you with who were you with were you with a particular again was it children or was it all ages it was uh, how they class it in, in, in kind of NHS terms in those settings is adults of working age, oh. which, uh, which is broad, particularly these days. You know, an adult is anyone from 18 upwards pretty, yeah. pretty much. So you'd have sort of 18-year-olds to people well into their 70s. Okay. Um, and it was a ward that covered uh, East and Central Bristol. So a really broad uh, demographic of people as well. Mm. And did you, so, I mean, I don't even know really where to begin with this because I know how huge that is. So you, you essentially, were you there to help them leave there or were you, were you there to help them, to help, because presumably for them to to be in there, they obviously were very, very unwell. Mm. And so were you helping them to get well in there or was it all about the making sure that they, were you about the leaving? Because I also, I understand as well, when people, it's very, they get very caught there, don't they, as well? And that's, that's, that's half of the, the danger of all of it. Absolutely. The, the and, and I guess sort of eventually, that's why for me, it had a, a shelf life. And, you know, I'll talk more about how that led me to to where I ended up working, but you do, you see the revolving door system, and for me, this is the problem with the 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 mental health system and the way we view mental health uh, in this in this country in this culture is we wait until people are really broken, and then we try and fix them, which is uh, in mental health terms still very much around kind of medicating. So the you know the medication was the the main focus. Um, and then anything else, the way that I saw it was kind of anything else was a nice kind of bonus. 
but it wasn't that important. Whereas I, you know, I'm a fan bias, but I saw what occupational therapists did, particularly in those kind of settings. So crucial. So we would, we would do both. We would support people to sort of be active, be engaged, uh, do things to support their well-being while they were in there. So we had a gym on site in the hospital. We'd encourage people to go down to stay active. We would run uh, regular weekly workshops in kind of things like pottery, um, craft. We'd run social groups so people could come down and, and socialise and play pool. We'd do drumming groups. We'd do sort of nature walks, all sorts of things, the kind of stuff that we all take for granted that we might do, you know, just go for a walk because it's nice weather and not even realise how that impacts on our health. But as you say, when you when you experience those kinds of settings, they're really bleak. Like a psychiatric ward is not <laughs> not an inspiring place to be um and you know these people have very few freedoms and they're really really struggling with sort of quite extreme mental health challenges and so to just find little ways that you can support them to um to, to kind of have a routine have structure and so we we try and support them to stay well and, and active while they're in there but also a big part of it was finding ways that we could support them to to leave as quickly and as safely as possible and that would be everything from we do lots of kind of cooking assessments so make sure that someone is safe to be able to go home and cook for themselves not only you know that they can do it safely but that they they understand how to kind of cook a nutritious meal that they're able to kind of cook for themselves three times a day budget for all of that to much more fun and exciting things like I remember working with someone who um, because of the medication he was on it really impacted uh, psychiatric medications have some really uh, nasty side effects a lot of them and he had a real tremor from the the medication he was taking and he this was years ago he was studying to 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 do animation at university and kind of like make little models and things. And he couldn't do that because of his tremor. So it was sort of finding ways that he could do the stuff that he enjoyed that made him feel like him, that made life meaningful whilst having to deal with those side effects. So, and that's why I love it because rather than saying to someone, I know you don't want to take this medication, or I don't know you don't want to do these exercises, but you need to, it's kind of saying to them, what do you want to do? Yeah. What makes you come alive? What gives your life meaning? And now how can I problem solve and help you to find ways to do those things? Mm, yeah, I mean, it's a huge, I mean, amazing, just amazing, incredible work. It's such a huge can of worms to open. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like it's like a whole different podcast and a whole episode. <laughs> because, because again, I, I've had to sort of try, you know, I'm not a doctor and I'm definitely not a psychiatrist, but I've had to try and understand it. So I've spent, you know, I spent mm. so long... And I understand now that, there, I mean, there are some amazing people and getting like uh, somebody I admire his work. I don't even come across him called Dr. Daniel Amen um, in America and mm -hmm. somebody called Caroline Leaf as well. And I, also I've been reading the, um, Bessel van der Kolk. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, he keeps the score. And they all are saying the same thing. And it's all tying into what you're saying. So so how I understand it is, you know, with de depression, mental health, you know, in the 70s, there was this great, amazing thing that they brought. They invented uh Prozac or you know so this was going to be 
the cure for depression because mm. in the way that that we have cures for cancer and we're a lot better further on but of all the different areas and heart you know problems and that we've done we've come so far with our science but with this with depression medication we now today it's we are the most medicated it hasn't cured depression depression is worse than it's ever been even though we live in the wealthiest society that we ever have done and in fact it's just got worse and worse and worse so the mm. what they're saying is clearly it's not uh, of course medication helps in a very small way but medication this is not about it's not this and actually mm-hmm. if you live in an environment and this is where a lot of my work with the next chapter does does really stem from but if you live in an environment where you yourself are living a life that, that you love that you I know we can't always have it like a bed of roses all the time mm-hmm. but like you say you're getting up you're doing something you love you're in an environment that's good for you you're in a healthy environment that even if you've your family, you know, and if you learn how to speak about your feelings and you're not suppressing all your feelings, this this is it that is gonna have a much, much bigger mm-hmm. impact. And it and actually not living like that is how you end up often in these places. And and like you say, it's so hard. And because then you're then on top of that, you've got this giant dose of shame that you mm-hmm. can never shake off, that you've gone into and and so I just think that's incredible that you because to be in there and see it and stay in that you know I can understand how incredible the work was but also how deeply frustrating it could be because you're almost dealing with a with a with a never-ending battle really as such aren't you absolutely absolutely and I had a a, a reputation for myself after I did that role I I worked part-time for um a community crisis team so you know that was eye-opening as well because that was the people who weren't at the threshold to go into psychiatric hospital or they'd recently come out and their threshold is really high the threshold is really high because if you think about it you know the hospital i worked in which covered the whole of bristol there were two acute wards and both of them had about 18 beds mm-hmm. there's a lot of people in bristol mm-hmm. and what i realized doing that job is there's a lot of very unwell people so there's a lot of them who are struggling in the community and i got a reputation for myself for taking uh, a long time when I did community visits uh, when I was working in the crisis team because I wasn't willing just to go to sort of do the tick box of are you taking your medication uh, you know do you feel do you feel safe are you looking after yourself if you had dinner today cool right I'll see you next week but I'd kind of say to them well you've got a garden out there have you you know do you fancy going out and getting some fresh air or what have you been doing with your time and and actually sort of, again, thinking about the things that they could do to enhance their existence rather than just kind of stay on an even keel. Mm. Um, but that's what's really, really lacking. And there's a, a quote that I love. I bash this one out quite often. There's a it's a really simple quote from a guy called Martin Seligman, who uh, he was like the founder of the positive psychology movement, uh, which was radical when it came out uh, in the early 2000s, because up until that point, psychology was about, as we've said, kind of, fixing uh, people when they were broken in inverted commas and positive psychology developed to to kind of focus on how can we actually enhance people to 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 sort of build on what is working and to stay well rather than waiting till they're really struggling and the the quote that he um he said was build what's strong don't fix what's wrong i love that and really really resonated with me when i heard that and and that's 
I guess that's sort of what I've gone on to really try and embody in the work I do is even if someone is really struggling, even if they're really unwell, rather than focusing on the problem and what they're doing that's not working, there will always be even tiny little things that they're doing or they could do um, that are working and that are in line with sort of their strengths and who they are as a person. And so to build on those, to me, makes so much more sense than to try and sort of fix something um, that perhaps is never going to really be who that person wants to be. Yeah. And that, I mean, again, amazing you that, that then you, so you kind of, you had that and to see that, because I've said this before that, you know, like you, we all think, I think it's very easy to think until you think oh, there's a magic place you go behind closed doors and you're going to come out and you'll be well again. And it just doesn't exist. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's, and it's, it's very hard because we're very, I think we're very lucky in many ways that we, we can go to A&E and we might all, you know, there might be lots of moans about the NHS now, but touch wood often when you really need it, there's somebody there that can help you. But this is an area that it really, the trouble is as well, you have to help yourself. There's, there's actually, as awful as it sounds, and as I say, that's not to say you don't need lots of help, but it does need, to, this is the one that needs to come from you, which is why it's always mm-hmm. so hard to sort out. So, so how did you go from there to empire, to what you're doing today? Mm. So I, I guess a sort of <laughs> whistle stopped her in a nutshell is I, so I did a few things en route um, because again, I, I believe that um, a, a fulfilling career is about, is about trying things out and experimenting rather than sort of doing the usual pathway. So when I left that hospital, the general route in the NHS is you sort of do a job for a while then you kind of step up the ladder and in NHS terms, it's banding. So I was a, started at a band five. What the, the general assumption was is then you, you then get a job doing the same thing as a band six. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something different. I wanted to try something else out. So I briefly um, went to the same banding, but as a paediatric OT, working in the community with children and young people who uh, perhaps had uh, autism, ADHD, dyspraxia, and supporting them kind of to be able to engage in in their school school life. I did that for a short time um, and sort of very quickly from there, I um, started working in children and young people's mental health. And I went into that um, setting because again, I, I, I was so disillusioned with with adult mental health and, and the system that we've created in, in this country which is great. And, you know, it, it, it does a lot of wonderful things, but it's just, it, it's, not, it's not working. Yeah. The way we view mental health and the way we treat it isn't working. So I was really keen to work in children and young people's mental health to see if I could just, even in a small way, kind of impact on young people before they get to that point in adulthood. And how I did that was I found a charity uh, in Bristol. It's called OTR, off the record. And I am... Um, I really like what they did. This was years ago. I really like what they did. Um, I thought, I really want to work there. I had a, a contact in the organization. So I, through that, I, I got in touch with the CEO. And I just sent him a long email set, introducing myself, explaining my job and what I did, and all of the things that I thought I could do for the organization. I met with him, and he got back to me after we met and said, you know, I really love, uh, I think you're great. I think you'd be great in this organization. Unfortunately, we just don't have any funding at the moment for a role for you. But 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna let's keep in touch and we'll see if anything comes up and I was like <laughs> I was like a dog with a bone the poor man I just uh I just kind of every few months I'd be like hi hi I'm still here and he and and he was true to his word he gave he kind of said you know we've got some funding to do deliver training can you come and do some workshops for our staff on sensory sensory integration and that kind of thing and I just kept in touch and I kept interested and eventually they got funding for me to do one day a week staff well-being so I did that alongside the the job in pediatrics and then a role came up in there as a, a team leader, a therapy team leader. And I went for that um, and I got that job. And then I sort of had a really interesting experience in that organisation, doing all sorts of different things, really um, being kind of promoted uh, just to the edge of my experience. And it really pushed me and it really um, made me grow in confidence uh, and, and ability and through there, I was put in touch with um, Empire Fighting Chance. Um, so uh, an organisation who, um, I don't know how much your listeners will know. I know you've spoken previously to Martin, the CEO, yes, but have, uh, yeah. in a nutshell, again, a charity that um, supports young people from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds in Bristol and, and now other parts of the country through boxing, through the medium of boxing. And I remember working with them a bit through this other organisation to kind of do staff supervision to help them think about how they were working with mental health of the young people and their staff. Nothing uh, came of that at the time. And I got to the point where I wanted to do something new. Um, and a job came up as a university lecturer in occupational therapy. So I applied for that. I got the job. And this was uh, and I started the job uh January 2020 so you know Q three months later (laughs) and I'm a university lecturer for 90 plus students in the middle of the pandemic trying to teach them online. Wow because yeah of course yeah because then it all went online so what they were all the empire all the the young people going to empire you were then talking to them on online as such. So, well, no. So this was uh, this was an entirely different setting. So this was working at the university that I studied at. Oh, I see. I see. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So again, this is my very, yeah. <laughs> my very uh, kind of interesting checkered career. Kind of from uh, the mental health charity, I did a year as a university lecturer. And what's really interesting, and I guess where this is relevant, is so this was in my mind my dream job. I'd always wanted to lecture ever since I'd sort of studied occupational therapy myself and loved it. I love the idea of lecturing. I love presenting. I love performing. And I and I couldn't believe that I got the job because, you know, I was very young uh, at the time for a lecturer, kind of in my mid-30s. Um, and I was working with uh, who had been my former lecturers uh, my my former teachers um, and I was so excited about all of the things I could do and teaching the students and I very quickly realized that again <laughs> the, the the education system mm, in this yeah. country the kind of public education system it, it's 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 radically uh, underfunded and the staff are overworked and and everyone said to me when I started there you'll be working evenings and weekends and I kind of said to them no no no, no I won't and they were like, no, you will. You, you, that's the only way. And, and, and they were right. It was the only way I could do it. And I remember very quickly thinking, 
um, this is not what I signed up for, um, becoming really, really exhausted by it all and, and having to deal with the, the pandemic. And I remember very quickly thinking either I can change this system, I'll try and change it, either I'll get, I'll, I'll get swallowed up by it and I'll have to just submit or I'm going to have to leave. And I realised that the latter was was my only option. And that was really hard for me to do because there was a lot of shame around not sticking at it for long. Uh, I left the job after a year. But what was really fascinating is realising just because you think something's your dream job, mm. uh, you can do it and realise actually it isn't what you want to do at all. No. I enjoyed it and I enjoyed the lecturing, but that was a small part of it. But I'm so grateful for that experience. And what I'll often say to people is, if you end up in a job that you you hate or that you just don't enjoy or isn't quite what you wanted, brilliant. Yeah. Because now you know something that you definitely don't want to do, yeah. which makes it a much easier to, to, to find what you do. Um, so that experience was amazing. But um, through that, so I got to the point where I was like, right, this is it. Um, I, I had nothing to go to. But I knew I needed to, to, to look after myself and put myself first. Um, and so I decided to leave, handed in my notice. And at the time I was working um, part time freelance as a, a fitness and yoga instructor. Wow. OK. And because um, I, I, I trained to do those two roles because I feel that mental and physical health is so closely linked my own journey with sort of fitness and exercise uh, has dramatically impacted on my my mental health and so I was curious just to kind of explore that as a sideline and I got in touch with uh, if you remember back the, the CEO of the mental health charity who had sort of taken a punt on me mm. all those years ago I got in touch with him because really smart guy knew me really well and I said I just want to have a chat because you know I'm leaving this university not sure what I want to do and I just want to throw some ideas around with you to try and you know think what I might want to do next and he said to me I told him my situation he said okay I'm really sorry to hear um hear where you're at and that you're struggling in this one instance I might be able to help you and I, my ears kind of pricked up because I wasn't expecting anything from him. And so he was the he left that mental health charity. He'd moved to another part of the country. But he was a trustee for Empire Fighting Chance. Um, and he has done a lot of work uh, with sort of uh, working with race um, and with uh, young people's mental health in the city of Bristol. So he he really knew a lot about and believed in what they were doing. And he said to me, they are looking to develop a, a therapy model in the organization. So you've got therapy, you've got boxing. And he was like, even if you and even if you weren't in the position where you're looking for another job, I would be contacting you and saying you need to go for this because wow. this is like the two two things that I do yeah. um, in a job that doesn't literally doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, and they're looking for someone and I'm looking for a job. So again long story short I through him was put in touch with the CEO Martin Bisp um, in Empire Fighting Chance uh, had a number a series of conversations with him and eventually agreed to to go and work for them as the boxing therapy manager boxing therapy being a, a thing that literally didn't exist but my job was create it for us create a way of working therapeutically using boxing and I love uh, like a creative challenge 
is, uh, is is what I absolutely thrive on. So I was like, brilliant. Um, yeah. Wow, Kat, that's amazing. See, I love that, how that all came together. And isn't mm. it funny how there you were back in, like as a child with the whole teaching thing and mm. you didn't like the way you sort of had to behave as such. But then, and you kept going back to the teaching. It's fascinating to me that you went to the university lecturing as well. So mm. you went like the whole spectrum from primary school all the way through. Mm. But you saw it. And then I'll ask you about your fitness in a minute. But but basically then it just all came together. And that lovely mm. manager, and there it was. And I know how special Empire is. I just know mm. it is. And that just brought everything. So, But then you're dealing with... Um, you're not dealing, you're helping young people who know that felt exactly the same way that you felt at school mm-hmm. where, you know, and feel a bit, you know, not this isn't right. Why should I keep being told what to do? So you've got that complete and utter understanding and here you are completely changing lives with them. So, mm-hmm. I mean, oh my God, that's just amazing. So did you just do your yoga and fitness? Um, was that like a, when you were an occupational therapist? Was that something you would do? When were you, did you do that? Did you do that in the evenings or when was that? Yeah, so... I was telling someone about this the other day because I uh, I firmly believe that and what I've, I've come to discover is that rather than trying to work out what the right job for you is, is to work out like what elements you want as part of your working life and then kind of either find or create a role. And it sounds simplistic, but I, I do believe that you can do this, either find or create a role for yourself where you have those elements yeah. rather than finding the right job in inverted commas and so I was working uh, at the time again sort of if you go back a few years I'd kind of got and I think a lot of people experience this I went into the profession because I love being active and working with people and having that hands-on approach and I got promoted to the point where I was working as a manager and a supervisor and I was spending most of the time sitting behind a computer you know answering emails doing spreadsheets uh, all of that kind of stuff and I and I, and I wanted to do something more active. I wanted to literally do something more physically active. So I, I decided to. I don't even know how it came about, but I just thought I'm gonna I'm gonna train as a fitness instructor and a personal trainer. I think I knew someone who'd done the same, and they said, you know, it was great, and you lit- you're literally active because you're getting outdoors and you're you're doing fitness with people. So I did that. Uh, in my free time, in my weekends, I trained uh, as a fitness instructor and PT um, and with the plan just to sort of do it as a, as a, as a kind of side hustle, almost as a, as a hobby rather than a kind of big career option. Um, it's just something different to do. So uh, I would do that in evenings um, and weekends. And it was looking back, I don't know how I did it because I'd sort of do a full day's work. And then I remember one of the the places that I worked was, if people know Bristol, it was at the top of Park Street, which is a really steep hill. So I'd be, I'd kind of do a day's work, I'd get on my bike, I'd put a massive backpack on full of boxing gloves and pads. I'd cycle really fast up up this steep hill. I'd get to the studio that I was working at for a box fit class. I'd be absolutely exhausted <laughs> and kind of do this and teach this class. Wow. And, and I was doing this a lot kind of in mornings, evenings, weekends, but I loved it. And again, I loved the creativity because I would I would make up very uh, unusual fitness classes. I'd make up dance routines and uh, uh, all sorts of kind of interesting exercises and ways of doing it. Um, and so it was a really brilliant creative outlet. Um, and it made me realize again, 
that I that what I do love and really missed was being in front of people and working with people and and even though it was a very different thing it was helping people who were perhaps unfit or I worked with a lot of women who really struggled with and felt anxious about getting fit and getting active and I really loved supporting them to find ways of, of being physically fit that worked for them rather than sort of going to a class that they didn't feel um, was right for them so mm, and there you are using your creativity with the fine mm. arts so it was all kind of you know there it is all coming in so so at empire i mean i would say to um anyone listening if you don't know the story of empire it's probably best if you can to after this listen listen to mm-hmm. the amazing martin bisp if you haven't listened to him because the story of it is just incredible but in a nutshell like you say it's helping but it's helping all sorts of young people and mm. with this dreadful horrendous mental health crisis that we're all facing as we have said this time and time again the reason I think it's just so incredible is because again it's just it's talking to young people through sport it's not sitting them down it, you know coming mm. up like what you're saying what we were talking about earlier you know you have to fix it yourself or just will not you know it's working out what they do love and it's changing lives now so your job as such so did you create you did you create help create that whole program so they they box and what it is they're they're boxing but you're with trained people aren't you so it's mm-hmm. it's not a traditional sit down counseling um session but you're with they're they're doing something active but they're with people who can really kind of help them and encourage them and get you know in a, in a very professional way as well absolutely and I think what they realized so when I came on board they got to the point where they had a brilliant team of boxing coaches who would mentor the young people who would sort of support them with their personal development and this was working really well and but what they realized was that they were they were coming across in their referrals more and more uh, men, you know, specific mental health issues. And, and we see a, a lot of very um, we see a lot of, uh, of stuff. The young people we work with have come from all sorts of backgrounds, but they've experienced a lot in their, their lives um, and real kind of mental health struggles were becoming more and more common in the young people we work with. And so they got to the point where they realized that what they had was great, but they needed something a bit more specific and a bit more focused and targeted to actively support these young people's uh, mental health challenges, as well as kind of, you know, enhancing them to, to, to move forwards. And so they piloted, and this is why Empire's great, because they, and I've always been told, and why, you know, it's so well suited to me, because from the word go, when I started working there, they said, we are all about innovation. Keep innovating. If something's not working, even in the organization, challenge it. Do something else. Try something out. Keep pushing. Keep innovating. Once you've created a model that works, don't just rest on your laurels and say, right, this is what we do, but keep, uh, you know, tweaking it and, and building on it. And so they piloted um, working therapeutically by bringing in some external professional therapists, training them up in basic boxing coaching skills and and getting them to support some of the young people. And they kind of they realized after a short while, okay, this this works, it's useful, but we want to own it. We want to bring it in house so we can really make it kind of empire focused rather than something external that we happen to be buying in. So that's where I came on board and I was literally tasked with, um, you know, we need to find a way of therapeutically supporting some of these young people, but in language that works for them. And why Empire is so incredible and so unique 
is that generally how uh, therapy works uh, and kind of counseling works in uh, in this culture is you know you wait until you're really struggling and also you need to be brave enough and it takes a lot of guts to to kind of acknowledge and admit that you you have a problem and you need support and then you usually sort of get signposted to a very clinical setting where you sit down with a therapist who may be from a very different background from you and they may may look very different from you and you talk to them one-to-one and I personally and I've you know been to therapists myself I find that really intimidating um, and the young people that we work with, I I believe that a lot of them just wouldn't do that. That that wouldn't make sense to them. It would feel intimidating. It would feel inaccessible. They might literally, it may be inaccessible that they they can't afford to get the bus fare to the places where the therapy um, settings are, which are often you know a long way from where they live. And uh, but they a boxing gym makes sense to them. They will come to a boxing gym. It it's. It's a place that they understand. It's an environment where they feel comfortable. And so what Empire is doing, and I think so many more places should be thinking in these terms, is, you know, rather than sort of expecting the young people to come to you, go to where they are Mm. and find a way of working with them in their language, on their terms. Um, And you're going to have a much better result than if you sort of try and get them to fit into the box that you've created and the therapists in particular uh, I think it's an incredibly um, it's it's a profession that's incredibly set in its ways and we need to step out of the box and we need to to step out of our traditional settings and we need to do things differently and I when I started developing boxing therapy I kind of came up with this way of describing it it's sort of like stealth therapy or ninja therapy like the young people are doing a boxing session and I and I don't think that they need to to sort of obviously we 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 are open about the fact that we're therapists and and we're working with them therapeutically but they it doesn't need to sort of feel like traditional therapy they don't need to come away feeling techniqued or you know that we've used a specific approach with them they just need to come away feeling like they have been shown unconditional positive regard, that someone cares about them, that someone's interested in them, that they've done something active, uh, that they've enjoyed their time there. And we uh, and we try and sort of weave in the therapeutic techniques uh, within the session without them sort of really feeling like it's been a traditional therapy session. And that to me is is enough. Uh, again, anything else that they get from being there is a bonus, but just sort of showing up and, and, and feeling that someone cares about you and that they want to support you for a lot of these young people as well as huge because they may have never experienced that. Mm. I mean, it is huge. And it's still, I'm just gobsmacked with the work that you do there. And but also the the broad range of it as well. And and what I wonder, the more I mean, I'm, a, of course, no expert cat. But what I see is and from talking to you and to Martin and Joe, you know, who I, um, who's another lady who's great, who works with you. But what I'm wondering is, you know, I we get very caught up. And I, I know, and again, I'm simplifying it because I don't know. I don't know. But we'll say, um, you know, like in Bristol, there are obviously areas that are regarded and are, you know, there's there are much uh, more de- deprived areas, shall we say. But it's very much, well, you know, the problem's there and that's where the problem is and these gangs and knife crime and whatever. But but actually, I, we're talking to you, you know, what 
we also see young people from really middle class families as well. To, mm. to, I hate to use that term, but, you know, from wealthier families. But they are really suffering with eating disorders or mm-hmm. anxiety or, you know, all very withdrawn boys and girls. And and I, I, I suppose what I'm trying to say is actually it's it kind of without oversimplifying it, sometimes it all boils down to the same thing isn't it that they want to feel like you say just heard and loved mm. and their own person not this intense pressure wherever this may be and I, but am I right in un- understanding that that's how you can bring such a variety together because actually in some ways you know it's like the whole gang side of things mm-hmm. and from talking um you know with amazing Chris Sanago and I talked with him about this but mm-hmm. it, it's really all about a feeling of belonging so I um this one for me is 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 kind of where I come alive and I am so fortunate and I feel it's, it sounds it sounds cheesy but I feel so blessed and so um grateful to to be able to work with young people because I learn so much from them every day so as well as the work I do at Empire I work as a a private children and young people's therapist um and what I have come to believe and this is my understanding and it's also very much built into the the kind of core therapeutic model that i uh, chose for us to use at empire fighting chance which is something called act or acceptance and commitment therapy which works very much on on values helping pe- young people to work out what their values are the kind of person that they want to be in the world the kind of person who you know in their old age when they look back on their life they'll be proud that they were and for me, that is what it's all about. As, as you said, it's about belonging and it's about meaning, finding meaning and finding purpose in life. Um, and there is a, a book uh, which I would really uh, encourage anyone who is listening to this, if they're interested, to read. Uh, I think it's a, a, te- a text that everyone should read called uh, Man's Search for Meaning by a man called Viktor Frankl. Um, and... The, the book, you you cannot, uh, there's a lot of personal development and self-help books out there, um, but you cannot argue with uh, with Viktor Frankl, who, um, who, the book is about his experiences as, uh, as an adult in a Nazi concentration camp in the Second World War. And in this setting, he, he talks about how he survived um, and how he kept going because he found a way of finding meaning for himself, even in those incredibly adverse circumstances. And he uh, he sort of talks about the quote um, which the 20th century philosophy uh, philosopher Nietzsche gave, which was, um, he who has a why to live for can bear almost anyhow. This idea that whatever ha- whatever's happening to you in life, if you have a sense of your why, if you have a sense of sort of your meaning and purpose, that's what gets you through. And I personally, feel that it is outrageous that Viktor Frankl can find meaning in a concentration camp and we cannot help young people to find meaning in school (laughs) in their day-to-day lives and I think that's what for me a lot of it boils down to and that's what I see you know young people will say why do I have to go to school I don't see the point why do I have to do this why do I have to do x y and z and I will say to them it's a really good question you know Unfortunately, you do. 
and and there's a lot of uh, it, it, in childhood and adolescence you lack so much freedom you lack so much autonomy so again this is why for me so many young people rebel because if you feel backed into a corner and you just spend your whole time being told what to do by adults um and i also think it is not good enough that when young people you know uh what what people will call as answering back when young people challenge and question authority you know why do i have to wear my school uniform why do i have to go here why do i have to do this i i don't think it's good enough when adults respond with you just do or because i say so you need you need to give them a meaning you need to give them a purpose and as we know as adults you know school you might not enjoy it like me you might not use half of what you learn in adulthood um but a big part of it is is developing the skill um around sort of you know doing things that you may may not want to do but how that kind of builds um character but the the point for me is whatever situation you're in whether it's school whether it's a really different difficult situation and what i'm really clear with our team of therapists about is we cannot we cannot change the situation that the young person is in there's very little we can do to impact on that but we can impact on the young person and we can build them up and we can help them understand who they are and what their purpose is in this world what drives them what they value which will even in a small way help them to feel more empowered to then go back into that situation and maybe make some positive changes or feel able to survive it mm-hmm. so helping young people to find meaning in life their meaning and their why i kind of feel that's that's all we need to do um because once you've got that you can then move forwards being the person you want to be so a really basic way that I'll often describe it to young people is okay you're in a rubbish situation and that's you know that's downplaying it and sometimes I will use a slightly more uh, strong worded language than that but you're in a rubbish situation and we can't do anything i can't do anything unfortunately to 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 massively change that but you can either be in that situation and be someone that you don't want to be or you can be in exactly the same situation but you can be the person that you want to be and you can sort of align yourself with your values of uh respect or um determination or kindness you know how can you show the value of kindness towards yourself whilst you're struggling in this situation and i feel that that's all it takes and it's it's simple but it's not easy mm. um but i really think that that's the line that we need to go down and empire is doing amazing work at, at sort of working out what its own values are as an organization its own values and beliefs um and then kind of role modeling those to children and young people and again i think that's a big part of what we need to do as adults we need to role model um we need to role model these things in different ways of doing things to young people mm. because Oh, it's just honestly cat this is incredible. But um because and I'm going to say this and please I'll please tell me I'm wrong, but something I sometimes worry about and again, I am an amateur psychologist, so I'm not uh I'm not even a psychologist, I'm just an amateur. But um something that bothers me and again going back to the ethos of the next chapter which is something I'm just sort of trying to do. Do you think sometimes that um if a parent a, um, and a parent obviously i uh, know lots of parents and there isn't a single person i parent i know that doesn't want to be doing the best for their child i mean that's kind of a, a given and it's very rare that they don't but mm-hmm. if a parent isn't feeling their why themselves if a parent isn't really living how they want to live it's very hard for them to be able to 
and and that it's very it might be subconscious it might be conscious mm-hmm. putting all your unmet um frustrations and ambitions and disappointments and putting it on a child and you see this in sort of very intense you know in education and like sports and that but to just keep pushing that child and not just you know do you I and mean, it might be anything it might be going into a particular friendship group or going be in the popular group but often mm. do you think it's when a, a, a parent might not mean to do it but they are really passing on a lot of their own frustrations onto their child mm. yeah I would say so and uh you know not being a parent myself but having lots of nieces and nephews and obviously working with young people I know how hard it is um and and kind of like you said earlier going back to this idea of you wouldn't it be great if there was a, a pill a tablet we could take and we could be happy and everything could be wonderful but we can't life is really really hard um, there's no way around it. Um, so it's not easy. But yeah, I think uh, often we really need to look at ourselves first and we, need, and we need to own what we're doing and what we're struggling with. And this is where the, the work of um, the researcher Brené Brown is brilliant. Mm. Oh, kind of, I love her. Yeah, she's so awesome. And she gives the brilliant, uh, this brilliant example of how her young daughter comes home from school one day and she's changed her hairstyle from the morning and you know she says to her why did you change your hairstyle and she said well you know my friends made fun of me they said it wasn't cool so I changed it and you know Brené says to her well did you like it and she's like yeah I thought I, I thought it was really cute I liked it and she kind of says to her that's all that matters it's about doing what you want not worrying about what other people think and then she says how moments later she's nagging her husband to take down the Christmas lights outside the house because it's February and what will the neighbours think and the daughter says to her do you, well do you like them and she's like yeah you know they're great and but the, 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 what will the neighbours think? And, and then there's this kind of silence and she's like, ah, oh, I'm just doing exactly what I told you not to do. And I think uh, what's important as adults, as, as you know, uh, as, as professionals working with young people, as parents, as caregivers, it's OK to get it wrong. And, and again, what I will often say to staff at Empire is if you do get it wrong, if you say something and then you think, oh, you know, I don't know if that was the right thing to say. You can always go back, You can, but it's about owning it. It's about having insight and saying, actually, yeah, you got me. I, I just did exactly what I'm kind of trying to support you not to do. Or I really struggle with meaning and I come home and complain about my job and how I hate it. And I'm not doing anything to change that. And, it, and it's not saying that we need to be superhuman or that we need to have everything sus, but I think sometimes owning it. And so in the work I do as a therapist, in a very sort of subtle and, and sensitive way, but I will often find ways to let people, young people know, you know, yeah, I really struggle sometimes. I feel anxious. I get angry. I, I do things that I don't mean to. But once we notice those things, it's about like, ah, okay, how can I address this? How can I do something about it? And I think role modeling that, that we're not perfect, but we're, we're trying when we notice something we don't like to improve on it. I think that's really important Mm. I suppose what you're saying as well there is as parents one of the best things we can be is honest with ourselves if we're Mm -hmm. totally honest with ourselves that kind of opens up a lot of freedom for everyone really doesn't it rather than Mm -hmm. it's and just what just while I've got you Kat because I'm just going to ask you this in a situation you know where there is bullying or you know we've heard recently about some fights um I don't know the ins and outs but you know in parks you know and some bad behavior what is the advice you know what if you and it, it might be bullying you can see bullying going on or mm-hmm. somebody's being and basically somebody's bullying you 
or you're out somewhere and you can see some bad behavior going on and what what is your advice if you you know what do you do do you walk away do you what would you say and how do in in that situation where we all know what we're supposed to do but when you're a 15 year old or a 13 year old or a 16 year old what should they do Mm, it, that's a really good question and it, and it's uh it's so difficult to know and um, kind of in different situations i kind of feel that uh again you know obviously if it's a, a, a kind of external situation if you know there's something really serious happening or as you said a, a fight then that's where we do need to kind of defer to other services so if you are seeing something happening that really uh is problematic in public then you know contacting the police whoever or letting them know but i think again for me it comes back to in small ways doing what you can to impact on the kind of environment and the people in the world around you because you know again it sounds quite idealistic but if we can just sort of make small changes in how we behave in what we role model uh to to children young people to the next generations um and how we sort of support and talk to them uh, then the ripple effect is that they will hopefully go on to do the same. And even if it's just how we we treat other people, and you know, we all know this, and obviously everyone has has bad days. But when we look back and think about in our lives who has had the biggest impact on us, or the moments that kind of had the biggest impact, or the, were the most hard hitting or useful, it probably won't be you know the the professional that we went to 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 kind of support our mental health it won't be even though they might have been great the the therapist who we went to for for a couple of years or whatever but often it's like I don't know the person in the the shop where you bought your coffee and they and they made an effort to chat to you and to kind of ask how you were it's the person who you know the stranger who smiles at you when you're walking down the street these things um have a huge impact and a huge ripple effect and so I just feel that, uh, and again, it, it's, it, it doesn't solve things in the short term, but if we can just sort of think, what can I do to impact on the people in the world around me? Because as we know, particularly with bullying, bullies are, are really struggling and they're trying to make sense of the world and find their meaning. And so they will usually go on to bully other people because, because they're feeling um, really bad in themselves. And again, if we can just in small ways support uh, and positively impact on other people. And we have no idea how it's gonna land with them. And again, I'll often say this to staff at Empire, because we'll get young people who come to sessions and they leave and we might think, oh, I don't know, you know, it was really great working with them, they engage well, but nothing massively seems to have changed or they've still got the same struggles. And I will say, you'll never know what seeds you've planted and in how many months or years time that young person might suddenly think, ah, oh, it makes sense now. Um, so don't ever underestimate the impact you can have just by being a positive force um, in the world and, and treating other people fairly. It's all that stuff we know, you know, just treat others like like you would want to be treated, all those kind of cliches. But I think that's the best place to start rather than trying to make really big changes, just sort of change what you can in the world and the people around you and build from there. Mm, that's such good advice. And if you I mean, if you are in a situation where you see something or as I say, either someone's directing, you know, really being quite aggressive towards you or yeah, on that situation, using that situation, do you just and I know you say there the, the bullies are the cowards, but it's quite hard to sort of in that situation. What would your advice be? Is it to is it to just walk away? Just just keep walking away? 
Yeah, I guess so. And certainly with a young person, that's what I would usually advise. Just kind of step away, step back, um, walk away and then think about who you might be able to talk to who uh, who could um, perhaps support the situation. So if it's in school, telling a teacher that you trust or, you know, if you are a member of an organisation like Empire Fighting Chance or wherever it is, kind of talking to someone there because they may be able to do something. Um, and also as communities, to to sort of think about which which empire did so well uh, when it started up is to sort of think about how we can support um, the the people who are perhaps causing some of the issues in the community rather than kind of rallying with our pitchforks against them and trying to kick or push them out but thinking okay we've got this issue going on in our community so empire uh, again if people listen to the the podcast with Martin. Um, you know, it saw that young people were dealing drugs, that they were the kind of causing problems. Uh, they were in gangs in the local community where the, the gym was originally based. And rather than thinking, OK, how can we get these kids out? How can we get rid of them? How can we make them feel even more not wanted? Kind of reaching out and saying, like, how can we help you? Because this isn't working and this isn't useful and this isn't a healthy use of your time. So how can we help you to do something better? Um, so sort of thinking about, I guess, you know, in your community, who are figures or organisations that once you've addressed the problem or walked away from it, might actually be able to make an impact. So really sort of thinking of, of who the resources are and the people around you mm -hmm. that can support the people who are causing the inverted commas issues rather than trying to sort of oust them from the community. Mm. Oh, honestly, Kat, it's such good advice. Thank you so much. I could talk to you all day. And I, I, <laughs> I say this is one of your well-deserved days off, so I'm not going to keep on. But anyway, thank you so much. Uh, I do wonder if maybe we should do something on a separate, uh, because I know people listening to this, I think we'll have so many questions for you. So mm. I just wonder if maybe we should do something, but I'll talk to you that, about that later. So I'd be delighted. To, to be, con thank you, to be continued, what would you like to do next? Um, I have absolutely no idea. Yay! And that is the most exciting uh, space I could be in. I love, and I, and I don't say this lightly, I love what I do so much. And like I said, I learn so much from the young people that I work with. Um, I have... I've never really had a kind of like a five year plan or this or that, um, but I'm very much influenced by a kind of Eastern philosophy, which views life as a river and you just kind of keep flowing down the river and see where it takes you. So I'm what I'm certain of is that I will end up doing something uh, maybe not completely different, but that this will lead me somewhere else. Um, and when that opportunity arises, uh, I hope that I will take it. And again, what I've learned from my career today is just say yes. If you instinctively are interested in something uh, or it's in line with what you want to do or who you want to be in the world, say yes to it because you never know where it's going to lead. So I, my, my kind of career plan, I guess, is just to keep saying yes um, and to keep sort of experimenting and trying things out and, and stepping up again, kind of <laughs> putting myself in positions where I maybe aren't quite sure if, that I know what I'm doing, but just believing in myself. Mm. Um, and seeing where it leads me but I'm certain I will continue to work with 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 people and young people in particular in some kind of guys mm. well I'm sure you will, and I hope so and I just I love that you were the girl at school questioning like the teachers and that and I love now that you're with these young people who are saying why do I have to go to school and I hate it and then you're and I love that you're the perfect person for the job cat <laughs> you see this is when you listen to the universe it takes you where you're yes. meant to be I love this Thanks. 
I love this. It is all about letting go, though, isn't it? It's letting go of this control we all have. And I, I know, I know myself. It is good to have plans and goals, but actually to just trust that it, it that is such a big thing in life, isn't it? To just trust, to let it unfold. Absolutely. Your acknowledgements. Who would you like to thank? Who has helped you along the way? Um. So. I guess uh, I would most mostly like to thank the the people who have, have given me the opportunities, the people who have believed in me when I haven't perhaps believed in myself. So um, that would be uh, everyone from that first CEO who I worked with, who I mentioned. And I think I, I said to you in the, in the lead up to this podcast that when I got my uh, first kind of official job in that organization, and I loved it, I saw it as a huge compliment. The clinical director at the time, who was working very closely with the CEO, called me up uh i was waiting to find out if i got the job i was really nervous and he called me up and he said just so you know on paper you absolutely do not deserve this job um but they believed and they were really open about the fact that they believed it was about the right person with, with the wrong skills over the wrong person with the right skills and um, and they really through their actions they let me know we we believe in you you can do this we see your potential uh, they saw a power in me that i didn't see in myself and they really pushed me to to step into that um so i you know i would massively thank them them and then you know uh working uh, with someone like Martin, well, Martin and Jamie, who are the CEO and, and uh, the, the founders of, of Empire Fighting Chance. Again, they are very kind of down to earth, straight talking people. And you know, if, 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 they, if they rate you, 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 you believe in that and you take kind of uh, strength from that. And so again, kind of seeing how they have equally just sort of said yes to things and tried things out and seeing where it's taken them and not knowing what's going to happen but kind of having a really strong why a strong mission and following that um again is is so inspiring and they're doing something that no one else is daring to do certainly not in the charity sector so uh again i'm very grateful because i've i've worked with such incredible kind of mavericks uh and innovative people um and so yeah I'm very fortunate that a lot of the key figures in my career um, I would would be really I'm really grateful to and would really thank for for inspiring me and getting me where I am. Oh, I wouldn't say just fortunate. I think you attract, they see it in you and that's amazing. So your tips and advice. OK, so if somebody is in someone's listening to this now. Now, OK, they may be a parent. They may not be a parent. But, it, it, you know, it, the people around you are affected by how you are, whether you like like it or not. So if you're if you're living in a in a way that you're you're feeling stuck and I, I will stick with the job, but it might not be the job. It might be a relationship. It might just be a way of life. It might be something where you're feeling stuck and you know, you know, deep down, I need to make this change. And you keep, but you're going round in circles and the days and years are going past now. And meanwhile, again, this is having an effect on everyone else around you. What mm. would you say to that person? Just somebody who's feeling stuck, who doesn't really know why they're feeling stuck. What would you say to them? I would say to them, um, don't wait for sort of inspiration or the motivation to come before you make any changes because it probably won't come. You've got to do stuff. You've got to push yourself out of your comfort zone um, and just uh, explore what's out there and try something new. And I know uh, not everyone is, is 
particularly uh, uh, <laughs> in the current climate, not everyone's in a financial position where they can maybe take risks or do something different. But even if it's just kind of going on the internet and exploring what other careers or roles might be out there, or like I did, uh, and I know I mentioned to you previously, but I I think it's really outdated and I think it's going to become more so that we wait and we kind of go on job websites and we wait until an advert comes up for a job that we might vaguely be interested in to apply for it. Like work out what you're interested in, what uh, aligns with your strengths and, and your qualities. Um, find organisations or places that do that, even if they don't have a job for it. Um, and just reach out to them, contact them, because uh, hopefully what people have seen is that um, the, the the vast majority of my career, stuff has happened by me just kind of uh, knocking on doors that I perhaps didn't have any right knocking on and saying, I, I really like what you're doing and I think I could, I, could, I could do something, which, you know, then cue me getting the opportunity and thinking, oh my God, I don't, I don't know if I can actually do this. But again, just believing in myself that I can. Um, so yeah, don't wait for the inspiration or the, the job to come to you, but find out what you love doing. And um, even if it's just chatting to friends and, and, and back yourself as well, because no one else will um, until you do and just believe that you can do it. And if you don't believe you can, then just kind of step up and try it out anyway. Um, so yeah, I would say don't wait for the inspiration or the unstuckness to come before you do something. Just do the thing um, and and then it will come. And have the courage to walk away if you don't enjoy that. But then it then it leads you to something else like you did with the university job. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, be, start getting quicker at, at working out what your red flags are and don't feel ashamed or don't feel bad if you you do walk away from something. I remember years ago, a manager in the NHS saying to me, you know, as long as you can justify why you're leaving, you don't own an employer anything. Um, you know, if you leave one month into getting the job because it really isn't right for you, uh, obviously it's not great if you do that loads on your CV. But if there's something and you just think this isn't the right fit or it's not working for me or it's, it, or it's making me unhappy, you don't owe anyone anything. You, you get to choose where your career goes and, and not sort of leave it um, in the hands of other people. Okay. And just fine, I'm going to ask you one last question. And I am going to direct this to parents, actually. I am. But I will say, you know, because I think it's like we've discussed, it is very easy to think, look, you know, I'm doing the best I can. But actually, if you're not happy, as we've discussed, it does have an impact whether you whether you think it does or not so if you speak to that parent now who's like but you know I'm working hard and I've got my mortgage and I'm doing the best I can but you know I'm not happy but it doesn't matter you know blah, blah, blah. what would you speak what would you say to that person so if you were speaking directly to them mm, I would say um I guess again come back to uh kind of come back to your instincts come back to to your values and if you don't know what the, they are then um, spend some time thinking about it. You can Google, or you know, you can go on Google and and, and type in uh, lists of core values. Um, and what I get people to do, and, and the technique uh, that I use in therapy is kind of go through that list of core values and whittle down the ones that sort of really resonate with you. And but what you have to do is you have to keep whittling until you find three. You can only pick three. Your top three core values. And that these are your guiding star. These are your compass. They don't tell you what to do or how to how to behave in the world, but they let you know 
um, sort of, they let you know which direction to go in. And so I would say again, in sort of being the change that you want to, to see in the world, work out what your values are, work out the kind of person that you want to be, however challenging life is. And you don't need any, any money, you don't need uh, any resources to be able to do that, but work out who you want to be when you look back on your life who you'll be most proud of when it comes to who you were and the example you put into the world and just start living by those values and in any situation whether your child is sort of struggling in school and you're not sure how to support them to you know you're feeling fed up or stuck in your job and you don't know what to do next if uh, your core values are adventure humor and um determination then kind of thinking okay if i was really anchoring myself in those core values if i was being adventurous humorous and maybe being more lighthearted and, and and determined what would I do right now and even if it's in small day-to-day -day ways uh, just keep, stay aligned with those values um so yeah if nothing more if people go away work out what their top three core values are and then just think in any situation how can I use those and if you can role model that to, to young people in the world around you then yeah that is that is a huge um difference that you can make to them and yourself Kat Taylor, I knew it was going to be wonderful talking to you. you. I mean, it's been even better than I could have imagined. I hope this is the <laughs> first of many conversations because I think what you're doing is helping generations and it's just absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest. On the it's next been amazing. Chapter. I have loved every second. I'm like, yeah, I could talk about this for hours as well. So you're going to need to cut me off. <laughs> So there you are. What did you think of that? I mean, there's so much to take in. So what next? Well, it's funny because Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, was also mentioned by another guest I'll share with you in a few weeks. So for me, I'll definitely be reading that. But it's so true, isn't it? And I'm going to take this on board. Be the change you want to see in the world. Now, you can find Kat Taylor and her work at her website, findyourhappiness.me. And if you'd like to explore mental health more, it's a big theme which I explore in my book, The Pink Coffee Shop, especially through the character Lily and her niece, Rosie. So you may find this helpful. Now, after the recording of this conversation, Empire Fighting Chance became a charitable partner of this podcast. They really are fighting for young lives. And I'm so proud they're now supporting the work we're doing here too. So we'll be back next week. But in the meantime, remember that. Be the change you want to see in the world. I think you can do it and Kat does too. Speak soon.